is, um, for those of you who don't know, he's one of Spirit Rock's teachers. And I'm always, always, it's not that often that I get to be impressed with someone who spent a year on retreat. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, and I've, I've known Richard for a while, and he spent a year at the Forest Refuge a few years ago. And uh, when he returned, I guess that's the right word, right? He returned. Um, he, he wrote a book on, on concentration practice, uh, the experience of samadhi, which is uh, not uh, overly technical. He he is a uh, a scholar as well, and so um, I will be on retreat, so I'll miss him. But you have a chance to uh, to hear him. For any other any other. Uh, Announcements? Well, my name is Tony Bernhardt, and I'm a friend and a student of Sylvia's, and it's a treat for me to be able to visit. <clears throat> Every few months I get a chance to come and, and uh, meet with you guys, and I, I've come to recognize familiar faces, and it's just a very sweet time. This, uh, I wanted to... Uh, Start this morning with a with a uh, boy. Aren't aren't New Yorker cartoons? There's something about the gospel of the New Yorker. Uh, you know, Sylvia has the the New Yorker canon. Uh, uh, and one of the one of the cartoons that uh, that I particularly um, uh, like in in regard to what I'm going to talk about today is a, it's just a simple picture of a drunk in a bar saying, do you have any idea who I think I am? <laughs> so I wanted to talk today about who we think we are. <laughs> do we have any idea? I, I love that story, and it contrasts with the story of uh, Bodhidharma, who was the meditation master who's attributed with bringing Buddhism from India to China. Um, and he, after he'd been practicing um, in China for some years, the emperor summoned him. And, you know, in China, the emperor at the time, I guess, was sort of like the pharaoh or an ayatollah. He was God on earth, and, I mean, he didn't get more prestigious and so the emperor summoned him into the court and and uh, some of you may have seen pictures of Bodhidharma paintings of him anyway and he's always portrayed as rather fierce big eyebrows and glaring and uh, the emperor addressed him and said I've been supporting your practice and your ministry. I guess maybe ministry isn't the word, but I've been supporting your practice now and your your temples and stuff. And and uh, I want to know what kind of merit I've I've accrued as the result of this. <clears throat> Bodhidharma looked at him and said, "No merit at all." You know, sort of an affront to God on earth. <laughs> and the emperor looked at him and said. Well, in what is holy then? What, what is holy? 
if this, if this isn't worth merit, what is holy? Bodhidharma looked at him and said, nothing holy anywhere. The emperor looked more closely at him and said, who are you? And he said, I don't know. I, I told that story um, recently in a group and someone repeated it back to me almost right away and what they heard was, nobody. Who are you? Nobody. Not anybody important. And that's not what he said. What he said was, I don't know. And that's huge. Well, not only because you're saying it to the senior authority on the planet, as, as you know it, um, but just the willingness to be with don't know mind. Zen master uh, Sun Sunim used to urge his, his students to cultivate don't know mind. Just don't know. Don't know, he would say, and save all beings. You know. And how comfortable are we with that, with not knowing? We all sort of have an idea of who we think we are, or who we are. We actually don't separate that so much. And it, it, it relates to the, to the Buddha's notion of anatta, you know, one of the three qualities of our experience. I love the way Sylvia talks about it. Um, anicca, which is impermanence, dukkha, which is unsatisfactoriness and anatta, which is translated often as not-self. And she said the first time she heard <clears throat> that, she thought, well, two out of three is not bad, but I know I'm here. <laughs> you know. But anatta is interesting because it, it, uh, it's, it's often... Um, the object of a lot of speculation, and where it started from Where it started from was at the, the Buddha used the term because in the, the culture that he found when he was teaching uh, the Brahmanical society, there was uh, um, this notion that there was this essence, this spirit that permeated the entire universe, uh, was not physical, couldn't be seen, it was, it was an essence somehow, that permeated everything, and this was Brahman. And each one of us has a spark of that essence in us, and this was called, the term for this was Atman. And the notion in Brahmanical teachings was that each person was to recognize that Atman was Brahman, that there was a connection that they were somehow the same. It was the spark of the same fire. And this was Brahmanical um, catechism, if you will. And it's similar. We can see sim similarities in you know, the God and soul, um, <coughs> things like that in our culture. And we hear it often, you know, there's, we, we hear it in metaphors about <clears throat> The ocean and the wave, you know, you've heard that one. There's the ocean, there's the universal, and each of us is just a manifestation of that. 
The Buddha said, anatta, no atman. And that's where, where it came from. It's basically no atman, no spark, no, no brahman either. He was maintaining. That was his teaching. Don't know, maybe. But not something. And yet, the way we think of ourselves, the way we understand ourselves, our identity, is in a very real sense karma. It is our karma. The way we think of ourselves will determine even, even how we experience the world. An artist who looks at a mountain that's where a storm is bearing down and the clouds and the rain and the will see something entirely different than a rock climber who's looking at a, a mountain that's, that is about to, uh, to scale. So even just the way the things you perceive in the world um, depends on how you identify yourself, how you, who you think you are. And it's not so much who you think you are, we actually think we are. <laughs> I was I was listening to uh, to NPR this morning on the way over here. What I, I said earlier during the preset review, Jack Cornfield refers to NPR as the uh, Duca Channel. Um, and I was listening to uh, <laughs> some report on uh, I guess Claire McCaskill was having a meeting on healthcare, and and there was some somebody in the audience was saying. Well, I'm a Republican, and I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and then went on to <clears throat> ask a civil question, as it turned out. I'm a Republican. It's different. And because this person thought he was a Republican, what am I doing here? If you think you're a Democrat, or if you are a Democrat, you are more likely to think that Obama was born in this country. <laughs> no. um, if you think of yourself as an environmentalist, or if you are an environmentalist, there's the difference there. You're liable to relate to recycling efforts differently than if you, than if not. Um, if you think of yourself as not a Christian. You may have certain kinds of reactions to um, Christian presentations. You know how this works, you know, and, and it's, it's not just thinking that you are um, one thing or another. It's actually we, well, it is, but we, you know. I remember during the, uh, the run-up to the, to the uh, Second Gulf War, uh, going to a retreat and seeing people arriving with signs that said, not in my name. And I thought, ah, you know, we think we're Americans, or we are Americans. Is there a difference? Barbara Rhodes, who was, um, any of you know who she is? She, um, Zen Master Sung Sons, um, she was his first, uh, his senior disciple and the first person to whom he granted transmission. And she tells a story on her website, which is just, which, which 
every time I think of it, is stunning. She was, you know, as the senior disciple in the, in the Zendo, the senior disciple sits in front, right in front of the teacher, and then everybody sits behind and the newest people sit in the back. And he was teaching a, a lesson and, and someone asked him, you know, said, you keep talking about um, this Zen master and that Zen master, and they're all men. Are there, aren't there any women Zen masters? And he said, women can't get enlightened. Mm-hmm. And then he bowed and got up and walked out, and Barbara just <laughs> jumped up and ran after him and, you know, Sansanim, what do you mean? Women can't get enlightened, you know. And he looked at her and he said, Oh, are you a woman? (laughs) (coughs) Don't make man, he said. Don't make woman. Don't make self. Don't make anything. Don't know. Only don't know. Our gender identity occurs in our awareness. And our awareness, is there gender in the awareness itself? What kind of identity? And yet, we think of ourselves as being one way or another. You know, and we, we sort of we think we're here, mm-hmm. don't we? I mean, we do. Sort of no way around it. <laughs> um, of who we are, what we own, you know, the things we own. And this identity is a view, it's an idea, it's a thought we have that arises in our mind. And when we believe it, I am an American, I am a man, I am this, I am that, when we believe it, that belief is what clinging is about when it comes to ideas. The Buddha said there were four kinds of clinging, clinging to sense pleasures, we want things to be pleasant as opposed to unpleasant. I think that's pretty true. We don't sit and plan our day out. Let's see, how can I make the afternoon excruciating? <laughs> I mean, we might. <laughs> you know, but, but not generally. Um, clinging to sense pleasures, uh, clinging to um, uh, precepts, and, and rules. You know, if we regard the precepts, for example, as uh, commandments or as judgments, it's a kind of a clinging instead of as a practice. Um, clinging to um, views and opinions. We believe our opinions of things. I was saying this morning at the precept, we don't have to have an opinion. It's okay to not have an opinion, but we sort of, isn't there this sense that we have to, you know, that's what being educated is. We want to, you know, we report, you decide. You don't have to decide. Just watch them report if you want, you know, and, you know, marvel at uh, what they're doing. But you don't have to decide. And the last is clinging to um, personality view, ideas of who we are. It's one of the four kinds of clinging. It's a fetter, too. 
fetter being one of the one of the first things that um, we need to release to let go of uh, at the first stage of, of awakening in the in the traditional Theravadan teachings, uh, letting go of personality view, letting go of belief in rites and rituals, and and abandonment of doubt. So personality view is, is a, const- a constraint, um, and yet we've all got it. Where in a way we could be, uh, I mean, I'm not sure what it gets us. In some ways it gives us some security, you know, puts a, the brakes on this onrushing impermanence. You know, who are you? Well, I'm the same, are you the same person you were before? I like to think about how there might be, in what way are we the same person we were when we were eight? Pretty much all the molecules here are different. Ajahn Amara likes to say, this is a 100% donated body. (laughs) Because as a monastic, all of his food is donated. And he's been a monk for so long. He says, this is a donated body. So what is it about this body that's the same? Or our understanding, our view of the world. And yet we do have this sense that there's some continuity. Um, And we have ideas about our, our body. Physically, do we think of ourselves as attractive or unattractive, or are we attractive or unattractive? Are we too heavy or too small? No. We have these, we, we have ideas, don't we? we? And we identify with them. We have ideas about our character. Are we a good person? Are we kind? You know, are we smart? We have these ideas about ourselves. Are we wise? Are we truthful? And you know, we have these ideas maybe without any evidence. I was joking this morning, we all think we're open-minded. Anybody here think we're not, they're not open-minded? <laughs> Good. Yeah, we like, but but, and the rest of us like to think that we're we're uh, open to change. That we don't know everything. Everybody write about anything about everything. Anybody write about everything? You know, most everything. <laughs> and and so you know, are we able to name a, to to list three things that we're wrong about? Or, or, or show any evidence. Those of us who think we're open-minded, you know, can we can we cite any evidence that we are? We just have these ideas about ourselves. You know, do we like to think well of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's more pleasant than than being than being judgmental. Um, and being judgmental is, is interesting, because judgment, in my experience, always 
has to do with some idea about how we think things should be. Things ought to be this way. I should be this way. I should be X. Boy, and look at me, what a mess. Da 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 da. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> As in all the time? No. And these ideas we have about who, about how we should be or how things should be, that we believe, that we cling to, sets up judgment. Judgment is always related to some idea about how things ought to be. And when we cling to views and opinions, it's one of the four kinds of clinging. When we cling to views or opinions, we suffer. You know, rather than thinking, well, this is how it is. Or not thinking, but recognizing. Um, so we have our, our ideas about our physically, we have ideas about how we are, how our character is. We have ideas about things we own. These things we own define, ourselves, define us as well. You know, recall something important that you own. Something that you're not quite ready to put out on the front lawn and say, free. <laughs> you know, come take it away. I think of my furniture right off. <laughs> you know, but you know, that ownership creates some little boost of, of this sense of self. You know, this is mine. This isn't mine. And these, these ideas about who we are are, you know, as the Buddha said, they're views, they're ideas. Now in the Eightfold Path, the first two elements of the Eightfold Path are right view and right intention. And they're the wisdom elements of the path. The next three elements are right speech, right action, right livelihood. And the last three are effort, mindfulness, and concentration. The first two are, it's interesting, he put them in that order, or they're taught in that order. Understanding and intention. Because understanding conditions intention. Intention comes, flows out of understanding. Understanding, our views, our opinions, are included in that. So whether it's right understanding or just diluted understanding, our intentions flow from, if we think that um, eating trans fats is not good for us, guess what? Our intention will be to avoid trans fats. What a surprise. You know, our intention will flow from our understanding, how we think things are. And of course, you know, a delusional understanding is going to lead to more difficult. <laughs> we're not going to be as successful if we if we get if we're wrong about the way things are. Now the 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 Buddha said that karma was intention. <clears throat> in the in the uh, in our culture we've got popular versions of what karma is. So we got good karma and bad karma. Right? And this is the story, I think. 
feel free to chime in here if I get it wrong. If you do good things, good karma. You do bad things, bad karma. So if you're experiencing bad stuff, well, maybe bad karma. You did something wrong, you're, you know, isn't that, isn't that out there? You know. And it's just sort of this nebulous kind of thing. So I, I thought, well, you know, let's, let's look a little bit more closely. What does this mean? What could good karma be? It's the, it's the experience we like. Right? If we like it, then it's good karma. Or, or maybe, isn't it? Or, you know, and when we don't like it, well, bad karma. So our good karma may be somebody else's bad karma and vice versa. Um, but it's, it's about our, our preference. And how, how does that work? How does, if, if the Buddha says it's intention, how does skillful intention result in pleasant experience for us? What are the mechanics of, of karma? Please. I got a traffic ticket last week. I was so upset. I like didn't completely stop at a stop sign, and I had bad karma. I don't really stop at stop signs completely. And the officer. So you had it coming. I was bad. <laughs> and the officer said, "Well." This is really cheap compared to not hitting a pedestrian. He's like, this is really good for you. And I'm like, bad karma. He's like, this is really good for you. You didn't hit a pedestrian. You had a nice warning before something really bad happened. And I thought, oh. Did that reframing help you? uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because when you saw the price of the ticket. Yeah. Is three seconds the rule? Is yeah. it? Oh, That's it is. You never get a ticket. Apparently, you stop for three full seconds. I thought your tires just had to stop <laughs> rolling forward. <laughs> yeah, just if they stopped. No, huh? three seconds. I'm in trouble too. Well, the, well, the, what's interesting is, from the Buddha's point of view, it's not what you do that matters. It's your intention. It's your intention. It's only your intention. If you, if you do everything you can to help out and it falls through, some, you know, there's plenty of room for things to go wrong, you don't feel remorse. I did everything I could. You might feel sad, you know, but you won't feel regret. You know, whereas you might feel regret, you know, boy, I hope that SOB gets what's coming to him and then something happens, you go, oh, gee. You don't even have to do anything. You know, just the, just the wish. You know, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, because, you know. So the Buddha said there are skillful and unskillful intentions. And he listed them. Boy, he listed everything. Mm-hmm. Numbers. So the unskillful intentions are greed, 
desire, longing, wanting, that impulse to get. Ill will, which is irritation, aversion, anger, hatred, loathing. Yuck, away. And cruelty, which well, most of us will let ourselves off the hook on that one. But I think that the idea is to wish for, the, for unpleasant experience for another. You know, maybe even just to teach them a lesson. You know, and and to, to wish for that. Those are the unskillful intentions. And when you act out of those intentions, well, anger is really clear. It's unpleasant to begin with. It's unpleasant to experience anger. And unless, I, you know, there are some people, I remember our Secretary of State, Kevin Shelley, remember him? He came and went pretty quick because he found most of his sense of empowerment in anger. And you know what happens when you walk around angry all the time? Well, you piss people off. <laughs> you know? Someone comes into a room and is angry, how are you going to respond to them? Different than if they walk in looking to help. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. You know? And if you can imagine approaching someone you don't know yet, you're just meeting them, approaching them from a state of irritation, because whatever, it's going to be different than if you're approaching them with an open heart. You can just feel the difference in the experience as the approach. The skillful intentions are, instead of greed, would be generosity, dana. And instead of ill will, would be metta, would be friendliness. And instead of cruelty, would be compassion. So the skillful intentions are pleasant. Now, if you think back on a time when you were just openly, open-heartedly generous without any expectation of return, it's pleasant to think about. It's pleasant to recall that moment. It's pleasant at the time. It's pleasant in retrospect. And when you act out of anger, it can be devastating. I have a friend, I had a friend, I have, he's still a friend, I haven't seen him in a few years, who was in Vietnam. And he shot someone because that person had just killed his best friend. And he just, he just killed him, right in front of his face. And 30 years later, he's unable to put that memory out of his mind, daily, no matter how much he drinks. So, you know, acting out of anger, looking back. It's not whether it's right or wrong. It's, it's suffering. So the unskillful intentions can produce, will produce suffering. 
and the skillful ones not. The Buddha refers to the, that state as the bliss of blamelessness. It's a bliss. It's not that you're right or wrong or anybody's keeping track. Nobody's keeping track except you. you know, your own karma. Nobody cares about your karma except you. And, you know, we live it. So who we think we are, who we think we are flows from a view, how we evaluate ourselves, how th- is a view of how we think things should be. And our understanding leads to intention, to action, our karma. And what happens if we get caught up in delusion? You know, self-view. There's there's a there's a uh, a story about the very early retreats at, at Barry when they were doing their three-month retreats, the very first ones. And people came back into the meditation hall at one point, and somebody had written on the chalkboard. And I don't think anybody ever know has identified who wrote this, but on the chalkboard in front of the meditation hall was written, "Self-discovery is always bad news." <laughs> so self, you know, some view, identity view, the Buddha would say is an illusion. It's just an idea. It comes and it goes. Now if I ask you, for example, to imagine an equilateral triangle, There you did an equilateral triangle. Now is that the same equilateral triangle you imagined the last time you imagined an equilateral triangle? You know, or was it just created out of the rules you understand and you know what that means and so when you think equilateral triangle maybe this time it was red or blue or maybe it was just the frame or maybe it was, you know, I mean... But we've got this platonic thing going, you know. You remember Plato's the allegory of the caves where, you know, the everybody's chained up and they're looking at the shadows on the wall and the real stuff is there's a fire back there and the, you know, behind us there are people going back and forth and they're casting shadows on the wall. And the real stuff is the world of forms, the world of thoughts. You know, this stuff back here are not, not what we see. We think that that equilateral triangle is real, or you know, the idea of who we are. When we think of who we are, is it the same same person, the same entity, the same identity that we conjured last time we thought of who we were? Well, sometimes we think we're pretty good. Sometimes we think we're not so good. Sometimes we think we're making progress. Sometimes we think we're not. Wow. Well, if anybody tried to piece all that together, what a mess. <laughs> you know. And those, I- those ideas about who we are, the Buddha said, you know, delusional. 
And we're not those thoughts. Those are, those are ideas about who we are. Of course, he never really answered the question of who we are. The one time in, the, in all of the scriptures where somebody actually put the question to him, point blank, you know, is there a self or not? The Buddha wouldn't answer. And the guy, the guy asked him three times. And usually you're supposed to, after the third time, you're saying, but he wouldn't. And when the guy went off, Ananda said to him, you know, how come you didn't answer him? And the Buddha said it would only confuse him. You know. So we have these, this, you know, this self-discovery, self-identity, who we are. Um, if who we are is delusional, then we're going to act. If it's a view that's unskillful or wrong, then we can act in ways that don't produce the results we want because we got it wrong about who it is. There's a story, a very sad story. Um, <clears throat> in Sacramento, a few years ago, that just uh, has stayed with me. Um, guy woke up, he was, I guess he was a, a notable in the Sacramento political lobby scene. He woke up in the middle of the night and heard a burglar in his house. <clears throat> and he rolled over in his bed and he pulled his handgun out of, the, out of the nightstand just as the burglar appeared in the doorway and he fired some shots into his son, oh. who survived, but slowed him down for a bit. And all I could think of was how horrible for him. How horrible for him. And although we probably haven't done anything, most of us haven't done anything quite so horrendous, we do things you know, out of delusion. Out of, we make mistakes about other people's intentions constantly, even our own intentions. You know, we neglect other people in favor of our own wants and needs. You know, um, we don't notice the suffering of others. You know, if the first noble truth is that our experience is unsatisfactory, is going to be unsatisfactory, then all of us are in that boat. You know, everyone here, everyone we see, we're all that's the first noble truth. But we, we don't notice that so much. We'll take, we'll take candy for ourselves. We'll even take it from a baby, not, you know. <clears throat> now, it's not that, that this self is not useful. I mean, it's, it's really helpful to know which restroom to go into, and if you're trying to go to Europe, it's really helpful to be able to uh, have a passport that says, you know, you're an American. Right? I mean, these, these, the self-identity, it's not helpful to be totally delusional about your experience. If I decided I was going to go and be a surgeon, somebody's in trouble. <laughs> I forgot to go to medical school. <laughs> no. um, but when, but you know, our, the issue isn't whether we have these ideas, but how we relate to them, how we hold them. 
taking them, how seriously we take them. Um, and what happens, what happens without this, um, these lenses of self? You know, when we when we look at the world through the lens of ourselves, we um, we see things that we need, that we want, uh, that are necessary for us. Bhikkhu Bodhi says we spend our time going around trying to maximize pleasant experience and minimize unpleasant experience and figure out how what's going on relates to us. We do. And often, just recognizing that, there's a response, well, it shouldn't be that way. I shouldn't be doing that. Now, the judgment shows right up. But that's, that's the way. And in some, some senses, this is very, very valuable. Uh, you know, in terms of evolution, it's helpful to, you know, prefer pleasant experience. <laughs> You know, if, if, if you're looking for ways to, to suffer and to construct them, probably the gene pool will be missing your specific <laughs> configuration very shortly. You know. But if you're, if you're able to um, look at the world without the, the lenses of, of self and self-need, self-interest, uh, what appears are the Brahma Viharas. You know, we would sit, things are as they are, pleasant or unpleasant, without any sense that it's wrong that they are how they are. We can navigate the, the pleasant and unpleasant experiences that they arise and change and pass. If a being appears in our experience, without looking at that being in terms of how can it, that being serve us, we would, what would arise? Friendliness, metta. And if that being were joyful, we would rejoice with that, with that being. When we look at that, a joyful being, through the eyes of self, we, think some, we often think, well, how come I'm not getting some of that good stuff? You know? um, but mudita arises, you know, when, when I come home, my dog wags his tail and he's happy to see me. Mudita. Just, <laughs> just, and really, it's simple. It's very easy. He's just happy that I'm home. You know? um, if we were able to do that with all beings without the sense of self between. And when the other being is suffering, what arises is compassion. The Brahma-viharas are the, the four states that the Buddha identified, the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes. Vihara is a, a dwelling place, a house, a, 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 an abode. <coughs> and, and Brahma comes from, actually from the, uh, um, from the Buddha's time, the, the abodes of Brahma. So these are the awakened states of mind, the states without the uh, veil of self through which we normally see 
normally experience the uh, the world without the delusion of self, without the view of self, of who we are, who we should be. And from those states, you know, in those states, we are suffering free. So the idea, I guess, is for us not to judge the fact that we're stuck with ideas of who we are, not to think that we should be living this self-free life, but rather to notice just how we construct these ideas, how we, how we make it tougher for ourselves, um, just what these, what these views are like, the opinions, the ideas we have, and to recognize them as ideas that are just as transitory as the, as the um, equilateral triangle or the idea of who we are. Because they're situational. Are you an American? Well, you know, if you're overseas, it's easier to think of yourself. You know, it's, it's just right present. It's very different than when we're walking around here. How important are those identities to us? I saw a woman on TV, one of these... Health, you know, all the screaming and yelling that's going on at the the healthcare town hall meetings, and she was sobbing and saying, "Give me my country back." I'm thinking, well, you know, what what's actually missing? It's thoughts, thoughts and ideas, and the thoughts are just proliferate. They just proliferate. and the thoughts of who we are. And the more we can study them, the more aware we can be of them, um, and the insight that comes from seeing them just as ideas that arise and pass, as views, as visions that arise and pass, that are impermanent in and of themselves, that are unsatisfactory, and that aren't independent. They arise based on circumstances. They themselves are Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, these ideas. As the insight into that deepens, um, we're able to incorporate that awareness into our daily life. And that's how, you know, that's the, the way we can um, awaken and, and relieve our own suffering and, and that of others. Let me just pause here and see how this is going. Because <laughs> nobody's, only one person's interrupted me with a traffic ticket. <laughs> Who are you? Nobody at this point. Ah. <laughs> but nobody is somebody. Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> yeah. Whatever I think I am. Yeah, and what you think you are, you can make real. 
you can act out on it. So understanding who you think you are will be the basis for your actions. And your actions, your intention, your actions is your karma. So your identity is your karma. And so we, you know, we free ourselves by freeing ourselves from the constraint of, of, of that. So I always like to think of the, I've, I've, um, in the past couple of weeks I've started thinking it's fun to end a Dharma talk with the uh, go forth and cling no more. The thing about um, clinging Mm -hmm. is it does spur you on into action then at times. It can. It can get you to roll over and pull the gun out of your night table. It can. And it can also make you do something very positive to change uh, the environment in a positive way. And what, what we think may be positive, someone else may think is negative. Mm-hmm. So whether something is positive or negative, is it? Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. But you know what you do know? Compassion. When compassion arises, it's a, it's a response to suffering. You know, is it right or wrong? I don't know. But the baby was crying, and I picked it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that right or wrong? A compassionate response is automatic. It's not about a view, whether it's right or good, or you know, helpful. You know, it's. It's just what you do. It's a, it's a heart response. And whether it's right or wrong is a view. Mm-hmm. And when we cling to that, to, you know, so the, the Buddha talks about, you know, clinging to right and wrong, and not, or not clinging to right and wrong, and we think, ah, oh, right. You know, abs- <laughs> <laughs> but then when we get to actually any, any particular manifestation of right or wrong, we, that's wrong. I mean, find you find yourself. I find myself doing that, you know, in the midst of. Wait a minute, you can't. That's wrong. I'm sorry. I said it's hard. It is hard. I was. I, I think the Buddha is very clear about the fact that it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. It's, you know, it's, it's simple, but it's very hard. It's simple like, all you got to do is follow your breath. No problem. <laughs> or as Anam Tubten, who's a, a Tibetan teacher you know, over in the East Bay, he has a book that's titled, No Self, No Problem. <laughs> And I, although I haven't read the book, it probably is, you know, variations on that theme. <laughs> no self, no problem. 
I'm sorry? You know, right or wrong is an idea. There is suffering, and we can experience that. Ah, it causes suffering for ourselves too. There's suffering for ourselves. Is it, is it wrong to cause suffering for other people? What does it mean to be right or wrong? It's a judgment. And unless you've got, I like to think of it as Santa Claus, making a list and checking it twice. Unless someone is doing that, right or wrong makes us right or wrong. And we like to be right. It makes us feel safe and secure and righteous. But we agree that the eight truths are right. That the which? We agree that the eight well, the noble truths aren't described as right truths, and actually the, the translation of the word sama, S-A-M-A, which is, so samaditi is right view, samasankapo is uh, right intention, we translate it as right, but actually it's more, it, on the wheel up here, um, it's, yeah, it's translated as wise, some people translate it as skillful, skillful in the sense that it leads to the cessation of suffering rather than so we tend we're so conditioned about right and wrong i mean we're we're conditioned that we that we see the precepts for example as right or wrong i was saying this morning one of the precepts is not to uh, speak falsely is it wrong to tell a lie? It's not wrong to tell a lie. If the, the example I used was the Nazis are knocking on the door and saying, is Anne Frank here? I got to tell the truth. She's up in the attic behind the fake bookcase. You know, is, that, is it wrong to tell a lie then? Tell, you know, it's not, it's, it's contextual. That's what we agree on. Well, you, if you want to put a label right or wrong, then we'll get together and we'll say, okay, we'll agree. But the Buddha is interested in suffering and the end of suffering, the cessation of suffering, not in determining what's right or wrong. He never said, I teach what's right or what's wrong. And we translate, you know, samasati as right mindfulness, but really it's skillful mindfulness. It's wise. It's. Um, it's not right as opposed to wrong. You know, the task here is to recognize suffering. Often, at, you know, in, in, in the scriptures, he's, he'll sum up someone's final awakening this way. He'll say, and he saw as it really is, as it actually is, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the path to the cessation of suffering. So if you can recognize suffering that we experience, we project it out there on the world all the time, think it's out there. We're okay pretty much, but the world's a mess. Well, when you experience the world as a mess, that unsatisfactoriness is that that suffering that he's talking about. So we just don't notice it because we think it's out there. Right and wrong is something objective. 
And we really feel better if we think it's objective. We feel more secure, safer. You know? But really what he's talking about is that unsatisfactory, uneasy, you know, dissatisfaction. And that the sense of self, the sense of identity, who we think we are. Do you have any idea who, who I think I am? <laughs> you know. Um, it's not helpful in relieving suffering. <laughs> Well, I thank you guys for your attention. Thank you. Go forth and claim them. <laughs> <laughs>